Welcome to the live stream portion of what we do here at Household of Faith in Christ. I encourage you to visit our website, householdoffaithinchrist.com. You uh, can connect with our sermons and the radio show that I do, The Faith Debate, and a whole bunch of other good resources. Speaking of sermons, we'll be in Revelation chapter 21 today. So if you want to get your Bibles ready and turn there so you can follow along, you're encouraged to do so. We'll be looking specifically at Revelation 21 verses 9 through 14 uh, today. A message that I have titled, Here Comes the Bride. You know, wedding plans are almost always a pretty darn big deal, aren't they? They certainly were for me and my wife. If you can believe it, uh, Dina and I, we initially dreamed of being married out at sea aboard one of those huge yachts that the multimillionaires own, you know. Um, but that turned out to be beyond our means to pull that off. <laughs> and so we ended up started looking at large river boats instead that we could rent for the day to have our ceremony on that. But that just, well, it didn't work within our vision. Let's just say that. So we ended up pivoting to doing an outdoor wedding uh, Waterside, a uh, sunrise service outdoors was the goal for the marriage ceremony. And Dina, she picked out a fairy tale princess dress and all of her bridesmaids, they would be wearing her favorite color while they would be carrying her favorite flowers down the center aisle. And, you know, her dad, he had a friend back in the day who uh, managed a picturesque Orlando resort. It's actually where Dina also worked in that same a resort. She didn't work for the guy, but she worked in the same area. So we had quite a few ins, if you will, uh, for doing this right. And it was going to be our dream come true. And then the storms came. Literally. Inches and inches of rain for days and days. It was one of springtime's worst deluges in Central Florida's recorded history. <laughs> And so we had to switch to our backup plan, or we would have switched to our backup plan if we had a backup plan. There was no backup plan, only a mad scramble. Now, at first, the ceremony, believe it or not, was going to be moved into an indoor nightclub called the Copa Banana. And I said, well, that is only going to happen over my dead body. Can you imagine my bride getting married in a place called the Copa Banana? I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, seriously. So the solution to avoid being inside the cup of banana, the solution was to move everything into a hallway <laughs> on the second floor of the convention center portion of this resort. So yeah, it was a hallway, but it was a big hallway. You know, it was, it was a really kind of nice hallway, one of those very wide, very tall, very grand hallways that are designed to hold hundreds of people. It's kind of like a room itself, even though it is a hallway. And the decor, actually, I gotta say, it was, it was nice, or it was pretty enough, right? So it worked. Certainly worked better than a lot of other things worked that day, that's for sure. For example, in the last minute confusion, those beautiful flowers I mentioned that the bridesmaids would be carrying down the center aisle, well, they were kept refrigerated well past the time they should have been taken out of the refrigerator so that they could warm up. And as a result, the flowers never opened. And therefore, the wedding party had marched down the center aisle holding what appeared to be these very large bundles of fresh asparagus. And the outdoor vases or the urns or whatever you call them, the, uh, they were too heavy to carry inside. And so the flowers that were, you know, to align the aisles and decorate the area, uh, they ended up simply being set in place, mostly on the floor, I think, with the, the spongy foam that's at the bottom of the flower arrangements 
uh, still being shown holding the flowers together at the base. Remember, Dina, she's walking down the aisle. It's one of the first things she noticed, like, why are my flowers stuck in styrofoam? <laughs> and the downpour, it had created sort of, in certain areas of, of town anyway, like these temporary rivers, you know, torrents running through the streets. It was pretty bad. And so there were a lot of guests that struggled to make it to the ceremony at all. But those who did make it, they certainly did better than our DJ. Our DJ, who was uh, supposed to handle the entertainment for the reception, did not make it to the event because, well, the DJ got stuck in another town because all the flights have been canceled because of the storms. So one of our guests ended up kind of sort of working our wedding as best as he could, doing all he could to piecemeal the music together for the reception. And for the brunch, the seating chart, it got lost or mixed up, confused somehow, some way. And so people, they weren't properly seated together with other people that they knew. <laughs> and when I walked into the area where the brunch was, was uh, happening, one of the first thing I noticed was, there's a bunch of people I'm not sure I recognize sitting at the head table. <laughs> there's uh, something wrong here. Now, we ended up fixing all or most of that anyway, kind of on the fly. But, you know, it was a bit chaotic. Also... We had prepaid a rather sizable chunk of money to a, a company that was going to record all the day's events for us professionally, you know, videotape that we would be able to have as a keepsake. And we do still have that memento. But sadly, it's missing one of the big highlights of the day. My father-in-law is the one who introduced Dina and me when we were uh, ushered into the reception area. And, you know, the people, they were excited. And so they were hooting and hollering and whistling and clapping and carrying on, making all sorts of noise. And as a result, we really couldn't understand or even hear all the words that my father-in-law was saying. And we could tell they were heartfelt, touching words. And we wondered, what is he saying? But we took solace. Like, okay, we're not getting to hear it now, but we know we're going to get to hear what he had to say. These precious words, we'll get to hear them later on when we watch the, the videotape replay. Except that didn't happen. Because the company that we had paid all this money, they had goofed. And so there is now no going back to capture what was forever lost. And I got to say, that mistake still hurts. It really does. And the video team, they also almost missed one of the other big highlights. They almost missed capturing Dina's grandmother and her octogenarian sisters, a whole slate of her sisters up there, singing karaoke and having a Heck of a good time. It would prove to be actually one of the final times that all the sisters would be together enjoying uh, life together in such a way. Well, fortunately, it was noticed that the videographer team was kind of asleep at the switch, weren't paying attention, they were inattentive. And so we were able to make sure that we woke them up and said, hey, you need to capture this. You need to get this singing and laughing recorded. And so they did. And to this day, i got to say, it's one of the favorite portions of that uh, VHS that's now been transferred onto DVD. And so that is a moment that is a preserved highlight for us. And the father-daughter dance, that's another preserved highlight that was video recorded. It was uh, an exceptionally emotional, tearjerker experience because it was the father-daughter dance and the daughter lost her mother when she was eight. So it was a big deal. It's a time during which I felt like all the time around me had just frozen. It slowed down. 
And as I kind of looked around a little bit here and there, it seemed to me that every single person who was present for that dance cried at some moment. Including me, obviously, and including my wife, and including my father-in-law. <laughs> and that just doesn't happen, like, ever. But it did that day. And there were additional touching scenes, of course. Several cute happenings. There were so many cherished people who came together to celebrate with us on this special day. And so, despite the Mad Hatter histrionics of that day, <laughs> that night when everything was behind us, Dina was my wife, I was her husband, and so it was a good day. It is a day we would do all over again. In fact, we have. We have renewed our wedding vows, I think it's four times now. Most recently, it was for our 25th wedding anniversary. We uh, actually rented a hall and we threw a full-on mid-sized wedding celebration. I mean, it was like a wedding ceremony thing, everything, reception, everything. And I was thinking about this and I wonder, Maybe Dina keeps wanting to renew our vows like this because that first celebration, it just wasn't everything that she had hoped for. But then I got to thinking, at least not in every detail, right? I mean, we ended up married, so that she was hoping for that. <laughs> at least I hope so. <laughs> but maybe also, I think it could be that maybe she wants to keep having these renewal ceremonies because in those moments, she feels exceptionally beautiful and valued and loved. And that's the way all of us who are among God's elect will feel for all time. And perfectly so. Exceptionally beautiful. Valued. Loved. No floodwaters to spoil things. No rainy nights or canceled flights or irritable fights. No touristy Copa Bananas. <laughs> no regrets over what didn't happen. No regrets over what did happen. When the Lamb of God throws his wedding feast for his bride dressed in white, it is sweet perfection. And that's the next stop in our swirling whistle-stop tour of uh, aboard the, uh, the Revelation Tank Engine Express. The home stretch of the Revelation uh, kicks into high gear after the, the vision describing the fall of Babylon. After this, we're shown a vision that includes the, the Bible's Hallelujah Chorus, you might remember, and, and the announcement of the Lamb's marriage to his bride, and, and the faithful and true rider of the white horse crushing the beast and the false prophet and Satan. And within the same vision, John, he sees the, the lake of fire and the arrival of the new heaven and earth. And now, here, in verse 9 of chapter 21, John describes the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem. Starting with verse 9. Then one of the seven angels with the seven bowls full of the seven final plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride 
the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, shining with the glory of God. Its radiance was like a most precious jewel, like a jasper as clear as crystal. The city had a great and high wall with twelve gates inscribed with the names of the twelve tribes of Israel and twelve angels at the gates. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations bearing the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. This is the very word of God. Because it is God's word, it is inerrant, it is infallible, and it is fully sufficient as the standard for how we are to live our lives and what we are to believe. And so I encourage you always to receive it as such, and I pray that those with ears would hear. Now, it's no accident that this portion of the vision features again one of the seven angels with the seven bowls. This was also the case back in chapter 17. Four chapters earlier, John there was shown the harlot of Babylon. And in contrast to this, he is now shown the wife of the Lamb. The harlot belongs to the satanic evil world. The wife, the Lamb's bride, belongs to the Lord's holy heaven. And let's recall where things left off in the previous passage that we were looking at in last time's sermon. In verse 8, there's a warning of the second death for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and sexually immoral and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars. And it seems very plausible that this warning from verse 8, it's for those who are inside the visible church. Don't pretend that you belong to the bride when you, in fact, belong to the beast. You are either truly part of the body of Christ or you are part of that great prostituting harlot. It's either or. It's one or the other. And in verse 10, the contrast between these two women, it continues. Whereas Babylon is lowly and associated with the the deep abyss, The holy city of Jerusalem is highly esteemed and is coming out of heaven from God. This beautiful truth that is amplified by the language telling us that John, he was carried to a great and high mountain to have a better vantage point for taking in the radiance of the sight before him. And more than this even, John is carried away in the spirit for this amazing spectacle. Now, this is the fourth and final time that John is said to have been in the Spirit, in the Revelation. Four, as we have talked about a number of times in our series, it's one of the key numbers for understanding the the structure and the interpretation of the Revelation. So I wonder, will the placement of these four occurrences reveal anything to us? Well, in fact, they reveal something rather interesting. The first mention of being in the Spirit came in the very first chapter. It's when John was first commissioned to record the visions. And then the second in the spirit uh, occurrence happens in the fourth chapter. That's the throne room scene, you might remember. That's where the revelation first transitions in a rather major way into the wildly vivid images that we typically associate with the apocalypse. 
So they both come early at the start of things, setting the stage for the message that's to come. So I wonder, where are the remaining two? In the Spirit, phrase is found. Well, in chapter 17, which I've already mentioned. Chapter 17, when the judgment of the harlot is shown. And then, here in chapter 21, when the glorious revealing of the bride is shown. This is a scene in chapter 21 during which one might say that we are privileged to see the church transfigured. This is true, at least in a sense. And it's interesting, John, in the Gospels we know that he saw Christ's transfiguration on a mountain. Well, here, John sees the church's transfiguration from high atop a great mountain. In Revelation 16, we, we read words there that call Babylon great, you remember. But now here in chapter 21, we see that the truly great city, it's not Babylon, it's the holy city, the heavenly Jerusalem. And the angel involved in revealing the beauty of the people uh, who are faithful to God is by no accident at all one of the very same angels involved in pouring out the judgments on the ugly people who are in rebellion against God. It's no accident because John truly wants you, the reader, me, the reader, us, the readers, to capture this contrast as a means of dramatizing just how far removed from evil the bridegroom has carried his bride. Carried along by the Holy Spirit, John heightens this reality in myriad ways. He does it by his word choice. He does it by the sentence structure, by the systematic efforts that draw attention to the contrasts. And also by the overall structure of the book itself as one author has reflected, quote, the bride is mentioned in verse 2 of chapter 21 to raise hearers' anticipation for the vision to come. This is a frequent literary strategy in Revelation. John sees the angels with trumpets before the saints' prayers are offered as incense, after which the trumpets are blown. He sees angels bearing seven bowls before hearing the heavenly praises of the victorious church, after which the bowls are poured on the earth. He first hears the beast named long before he sees the beast's ugliness, and he hears the Babylon's fall long before he sees her. The announcement of the bride before her entrance also emphasizes that this radical and cosmic renovation creating for the first time in all history the perfect home is for her sake. It's for the bride. And Christ's bride is the genuine article. All pretenders are nothing more than shoddy counterfeits. And the fakes, like I say, they're oftentimes tough to spot. Maybe you're like me. I've, I've seen people I believe to be fooling even themselves along these lines. So self-examination is really important. We have to examine ourselves. But you know what? We need more than even this. We need to listen or at least pay some heed to what others in the church might tell us about ourselves. doesn't mean they're right. But we should hear what they have to say. Because maybe they are right. We need to honestly measure what the other saints are telling us about ourselves. Measure it according to the truth of Scripture and see if they're onto something. See if they're identifying something in our life that needs to be fixed. 
This is so critical that we do this because the frauds, even if we were the frauds, the frauds are so close to the real deal so often, so often. And John assists us in seeing this when we, we get a handle on how it is that he's orchestrating his writing choices in the Revelation. When we read the words, come, I will show you in verse 9 today. Do you recall hearing these same words earlier in the book? Did it ring any bells? The same angel who's talking in chapter 21 likely is the one who's talking in chapter 17 and is using the exact same phrases when introducing the harlot and then the bride. In both chapters 17 and 21, the Apostle John, he's carried away to a lookout point. At the conclusion of both visions, the conclusion for the first vision comes in chapter 19, the conclusion for the vision that's here in chapter 21 comes in chapter 22. But at the conclusion of the vision, the angel affirms the truthfulness of what has been said. And both times. It's hard to imagine, but both times, John, he worships, he kneels to worship the angel. <laughs> and both times, he is quickly rebuked. And so there is so much commonality in these two. And there's so much to be said about these areas of commonality. In fact, you could do a whole sermon series just on these common factors between chapters 17 and chapter 21 and the comparison between the harlot and the bride. So much that could be said. But for right now, the point's rather simple. The point is actually rather singular. Right now, the point is simply this. Beware. The fake can appear to be just like the real. But despite the assurance of sameness that we might think we have, we might think that we're the real deal, might think somebody else is the real deal, they're just like the real deal. They're polar opposites. Because one is false. The other is true. One brings death. The other brings life. One is arrogant, the other is meek. One is cursed, the other is blessed. One comes up from the abyss and is thrown into the lake of fire. The other comes down out of heaven from God, shining with the glory of God, its radiance like a most precious jewel, like a jasper as clear as crystal. Now the word radiance that's a pretty cool word. I like that word. And we, we hear it with some occasion. I don't know if we hear it regularly exactly, but it is a word that we hear in our everyday lives. You know, it's not a completely rare word for us. Because, you know, women walking down the aisle at their wedding, right? They're described as being radiant. Mothers-to-be carrying that baby in their belly. They're described as having a glow, a glow with radiance. And we even have ways of warming our homes, something that's called radiant heat. <laughs> But the Greek word that's translated as radiance here in verse 11, it's rather rare, biblically speaking. It is a word that's used only one other place in the entire New Testament. And that other place is in Philippians chapter 2, verse 15. That's where the Apostle Paul urges the church to never forget that they are to be luminaries or illuminators is how it's typically translated in English. God's people, the church, are to be radiant, in other words. Radiant before the unbelieving world. How often? 
Honestly, how often are we consciously aware of this truth? How radiant are we to the world? God's people are to be shining with the glory of God, it says. In Christ, God confers His glorious radiance to His saints. And this is who we are to be. This is what we are to do. As the now nearly 30-year-old song sings, shine, let them, make them wonder what you've got. Make them wish that they were not on the outside looking bored. Shine. Let them shine before all men. Let, it, let them see good works and then let them glorify the Lord. In this 1994 Newsboys classic hit, it also says, the truth is in, the proof is when, your heart starts asking, what's my motivation? Is it our motivation to live in ways that demonstrate radiance like a most precious jewel, like a jasper as clear as crystal? Is that our motivation? Is there purity in your life? Is there crystal clarity like the jasper that's described in Revelation chapter 21, verse 11? Or is there a whole bunch of impurity there that's still mixed in? Like the gems that we see all around us in the world. If you go to a jewelry store and you ask them to see a jasper necklace or bracelet or a ring or something like that, what the gemologist is going to pull out of his display case to show to you is something that's going to have a stone in it that's typically going to be the color red or brown or, or possibly yellow or green in color. On rare occasions, it could even be blue. These colors, they come from impurities. The jasper we're shown in Revelation, it has no impurities. Its appearance is more like that of a diamond. And even more precious than a diamond are the crystal clear righteous acts of the saints. Do you thirst for this kind of life? Only those who are aware of their deep thirst will taste the water of life. These are the ones who overcome. These are the ones who can truly look ahead to the promises of the new heaven the new earth, the, the new Jerusalem. And this new Jerusalem is illustrated as a, a city with features of a fortress. This is a profoundly spiritual fortress. And when seeing the, uh, the, the great high wall, we might understand this as the great and highly exalted Christ, our protector. The wall represents security and safety. It is both impregnable and precious. And with the 12 gates, you might see the 12 apostles and their gospel message as the passage or the entrance into joining the tribes of Israel. And all of this supernaturally guarded by God's messengers, the 12 angels, stationed at the 12 gates. See, not everyone gets in, you see. It's guarded. But the fact that there are 12 gates just highlights the abundant magnitude of entrance. Yes, the way is narrow. 
but people from all over the place will navigate this narrow path. And Christ is the one gate, but the fact that there are 12 gates here, don't be confused by that because we will see elsewhere in the Revelation that each of these gates is made of the pearl of great price, and Christ is the pearl of great price. So Christ is the gate. But there are 12 pictured here symbolically because heaven is open to all who are true Israel, represented in the Bible by the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles. That's part of what's symbolized by having the gates on all sides. Having three gates on each of the four sides, has the, they're open to the four corners of the world, you see. So this is a wink and a nod to the Old Testament, but it's not a pre precise wink and a nod. And I say that because in Numbers chapter 2, uh, we read there about the tribes of Israel being arranged around the camp. It gives us the layout. And, and the layout, it begins with the east and then the south and then the west, and then the north. So everything is described in a clockwise fashion. Ezekiel 48, the tribes, we see them arranged there too. Now they're, they're combined differently there, but the arrangement is still clockwise in order. First it's north, and then it goes to the east, and then the south, and then the west. But in the Revelation, interestingly, John here, he ignores the clockwise ordering. Now he starts in the east, as was the case in the book of Numbers, right? But, but then Johnny goes counterclockwise and he moves to the north, which is where Ezekiel had started. Now, if John were to continue in this counterclockwise manner, then he would move on to the west. That would be next. But instead, John goes from the north to the south before he then, for the first time, makes a clockwise move and goes to the west, which is where he ends, now, this is rather zany ordering. He goes, what is that? Strange. It's led some to speculate that John here is looking to score a point against astrology. Now, I'm no expert in astrology. I have some people I know that have gotten too involved in all that sort of stuff. <laughs> but apparently, those who know about astrology, they say that the, uh, the natural cycle of the zodiac moves in precisely the opposite order from what John has written. And so John, he went like this. Well, apparently the Zodiac goes like this. <laughs> so John going in the exact opposite direction is said by these people who say that they know what they're talking about, and I can't prove them right or wrong, to be honest with you. But they say that John here is poking a sharp stick in the eye of the astrologers. Sounds interesting. Now, I can't say that I'm fully persuaded myself because I don't know enough about it to be fully persuaded. And to be honest, sometimes speculation is simply speculation. But I can say this, certainly astrology, it, it brings with it all kinds of theological problems. But is John going out of his way to point this out for us? You know, I'm not really so sure, but maybe. Now, another point of speculation, this is from my own mind, is perhaps, John, he's, he's hoping to help us all see both the continuity and the discontinuity of God's people within each the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Because he did something similar. He did something like this back in uh, chapter 7, you might remember, with the listing of the names of the Israelite tribes. He, he listed them, but he did it in a different fashion than uh, what we find in the Hebrew Scriptures. I mean, what, what John lists is nothing at all like what we see in the Hebrew Scriptures. And I think it's possible that we are to make note that 
the people of the Old Testament and of the New Testament are all the people of God, and yet there's something different that's revealed in the Greek scriptures from the Hebrew scriptures. Now, if the Apostle John is making this sort of a point in the Revelation, it's not the first time that he has done so in the Bible. In chapter 2 of John's first epistle, he wrote, Beloved, I am not writing to you a new commandment, but an old one which you have had from the beginning. This commandment is the message you have heard. Then again, I am also writing you a new commandment, which is true in him and also in you, for the darkness is fading and the true light is already shining. So with this wedding of the Lamb, there is something old and there's something new. Whether or not there's anything that's borrowed or anything blue or any sort of sixpence in the shoe. You ever wonder why people recite that old poem for brides? Even now, it's been around for years, and even now you hear people talk about something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue. I looked it up. It seems that the uh, something old, that's meant to represent ties to the past, your, your, your traditions, your heritage, your family. Well, for the Christian, that past, it includes the cross of Calvary. And the uh, something new, that's said to stand for uh, hope, optimism. Well, for the Christian, this uh, future it has the most amazing glory in store. Great hope that we have. As for the something borrowed, this is said to point to uh, the support of others, that they're going to be there to help you get through, you know, maybe even bring you some good fortune. Well, nothing gets us through or brings us good fortune like the person and work of Jesus. And legend has it that the something blue, that that is meant to somehow ward off evil. Now, that sounds a little bit superstitious to me, but anyway, the blue is supposed to stand for love and, and purity and fidelity. So once more, we can use this old, I don't know, limerick-like sort of verse to remind us of what the bride of the Lamb has in her possession from her Lord. The bride has love, purity, and fidelity from her Lord. And then lastly, there's a sixpence in the shoe. This was intended, apparently, to symbolize prosperity for the bride. Well, in Christ, I suppose we could imagine just truckloads of sixpence dropped at our feet. <laughs> and it still wouldn't measure up to what it means to be co-heirs with the Son of God. The sermon today, I opened with a reminiscence about my wedding day. I got married back when girls were girls and men were men. Those were the days. Well, it's 25 years later that we experienced the other huge wedding in our lives. 13 months of planning, and I don't know, probably like five to ten times as much money was spent <laughs> Uh, than what we paid for ours in preparing for and paying for our daughter's wedding. And it was a splendid day. I mean, postcard perfect scenery and picture perfect weather and dance floor filled early. It filled even before the DJ was ready for people to start dancing. They were out there dancing and they stayed out there. That floor did not empty. It was jam-packed for hours, hours upon hours. And my daughter, she had a special moment with my father-in-law on the dance floor, like my daughter, uh, like, like his daughter had with him 25 years earlier, my wife, with the father-daughter dance. It was a different kind of a dance, but it was a unique memory that my daughter had with my father-in-law. And that does live on in video replays, by the way. And of course, there were uh, 
as there always are going to be, as wonderful as the day was, there were a couple of small missteps here and there. But I got to say, it was a good day, despite the fact that one of the groomsmen decided to allow himself to get a little overserved, and so we had to cut him off from the bar. But <laughs> other than that, it was a spectacular day. I'm not exaggerating, not even a little bit, when I tell you it is the best wedding I have ever attended. Not even close. I can't even think of a close second. And it's not just me. Countless people came up to me towards the end of the whole event to, to, to let me know how much fun they had, how great the day was, that it was, in their estimation, the best wedding they'd ever attended, the best party they'd ever attended of any kind. It was a wonderfully, wondrous wedding. Enjoyed by all, except my wife. Ironically, it was a hard day for her. But not so ironic, really, when you stop to think about it. Because you want to know why that day was so great for others and so hard, not so great for my wife. Because my beautiful wife wanted for her daughter the dreamy wedding that she hadn't experienced for herself. Back when she first tied the knot with me. And so she sacrificed herself spending the day serving others, particularly the needs of our daughter. Even when, I have to say, our daughter didn't really always seem to notice or maybe even always really appreciate it the way that she should have. My precious Dina worked hard that day, so hard so that the bride would shine and have all of her needs met. And that's like Christ. He worked so hard to give his bride what she cannot give herself. He suffered. He served. He sacrificed himself. The perfect sacrifice to save the imperfect saints. God is so, so good, isn't he? We think our weddings take lots of time to plan. God planned the marriage of the Lamb back before the start of time. We think our ceremonies are a lot of work. <laughs> our efforts are nothing compared to the work of Jesus. We think our wedding feasts are costly. How costly really are they compared to the cost that's paid by the Son of God? You know, there's a reason we orchestrate such momentous bashes, these huge parties, when there's a covenant union between a man and a woman. It's because, at least on a somewhat small scale, our earthly Celebrations, they point us ahead to that heavenly celebration that awaits. The one that's described here in Revelation chapter 21. 
So the next time you're invited to attend a wedding, I hope you'll be reminded of the eternal wedding to which you have also been invited. And during this Advent season, when we think about the, the coming of Christ, when the Son of God condescended to become a man so that he could be the perfect man living the perfect life to die the perfect death for his bride. I hope you be reminded that this is why he came. He came so that one day we could be a part of his wedding feast. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have these reasons for hope. We have so many aspects of life that can bring us down and give us cause for being dissatisfied. In these moments, we ask that by the power of your Spirit, you would help us to be reminded of the glorious wedding of the Lamb that awaits. And that we have a taste of this even now. That we are in union with Christ as your people even now. And help us to live out the life that is radiant to the world. That is quick to serve. Willing to sacrifice. Slow to speak except to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And help us to remember during this season of celebration of our Lord and Savior's first coming, that there will be a second coming. Help us to be ready. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'm going to shut down the stream. Thank you for following along. I'm going to encourage you to visit our website, householdoffaithinchrist.com. That's householdoffaithinchrist.com. God bless and Merry Christmas.